Sing for Science is made possible in part by a grant from the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded in Houston, Texas, and Los Angeles, California, with me hosting remotely from upstate New York. Don't forget to check out our other episodes with guests like Sia and Run DMC. So please subscribe to Sing for Science on your podcast platform of choice. The people that try to understand what are the origins of music, what was the evolutionary advantage of music, they are saying that it's just synchrony of apes or troops of monkeys that were larger because they could synchronize at night around a fire and that generated a sense of unity. That's of course a hypothesis, but it's difficult to test. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today we'll be speaking with the one and only queen of percussion, Sheila E. Sheila E.'s long career in music began in the 1970s, playing with heavyweights like Marvin Gaye, Herbie Hancock, and Diana Ross. In the early 1980s, Sheila E.'s career as both band leader and pop star took off with the release of her debut album, The Glamorous Life. The album's top 10 title track is the result of a collaboration with Prince and features an extended percussion solo that highlights Sheila's virtuosity as a drummer. Also joining us is National University of Mexico neurobiologist, Dr. Hugo Merchant. Hugo's lab researches time perception and our brain's ability to process a rhythmic beat and synchronize with it internally. Hugo's work has helped uncover the fascinating complexity of beat perception in the brain and how our brains rely on multiple neural networks to hear and sync up with a rhythmic beat. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is The Glamorous Life. Decoding the Elegance of Rhythm Perception in the Human Brain. Hello, Sheila and Hugo. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. So this song made such a huge impression on me as a little kid. I mean, I think it was, it must have been one of the first music videos I'd ever seen, but I'd been exposed to enough of them to know that there was something very singular and unusual about a female pop star who sang while playing the drums, let alone one who could kick a cymbal, as you do in that video. Um, <laughs> and now 40 years later, I'm, I'm finally hip to the, the, the nine-minute album version with the drum solo. Could you give us a little bit of background about how it came together? Well, it, it came together kind of spontaneous. You know, it's in creating a lot of the times, we never know what's going to happen in the studio. And um, Prince and I were in the studio recording my record at the time. And we both agreed that I needed to um, showcase my talent as a percussion player and not, you know, I wasn't a great singer, but I, playing percussion should have been like the key. And that's what I was known for doing, playing percussion and playing drums. So that was going to be the showcase that that song. Mm -hmm. 
And um, after putting mm -hmm. the percussion on it and uh, taking a solo, to us it sounded like something that no one had ever really done. So we were very excited about it. But it, you know, it came together with drum machines, which back in the day we used the Lynn drum machine, which I, mm. I still have the original over there in the, in the corner. Oh, cool. And uh, programming the drum machine and then adding real percussion on top of it. And uh, that's kind of like the way I like playing, especially in those times when technology had uh, brought us the drum machines. And I used, you know, drum machines on top of um, or playing live percussion on top of something that is programmed as well. And that's how it came about. And was that set up with two timbales and two uh, cowbells and a cymbal? Was that your, always your setup? Um. Uh, most of the time, yeah, two cowbells, a small cowbell and a larger cowbell, and then two timbales, one high, one low, and a cymbal. Okay. That nine-minute version is out of control. So most of us are just familiar <laughs> with the club edit. So I'm assuming you started out playing percussion instruments instead of the, the drum kit. Is that right? Yeah. I started playing congas when I was um, young. Actually, my first time playing congas was with my dad i was five years old and he had a band him and his brothers called the escovito brothers so i sat in when i was five um i watched my dad play every day so you know you kind of you're you're around an environment of having someone like your father being a musician you pick him up pick up what he's doing and different rhythms mm -hmm. different instruments hand percussion as well and then a lot of the times he would have uh, jam sessions in the house and just with drums and people singing, you know, no melodic instruments. And then once in a while, he'd have his band rehearse in the mm. living room. So there was constant music around the house. But starting on percussion was it's not like I was taught. Uh, it was more like just watching him play. So whatever if I saw him playing and like we're looking at each other, whatever his right hand would do, my left hand would do, and I would mimic him in a mirror image and play on my lap. And then when he'd get up, I'd sit on the congas and play what I just heard, but mimicking in a mirror. So he was right-handed and his drums were set up, congas were set up as right-handed. But since I'm looking at him in a mirror, I started playing with my left hand which would be left-handed, but set up for a right-handed drummer. Oh, so everything wow. I did and learned was kind of opposite of what most people were used to doing. Like my cowbells are set up for right-handed player, but the timbales themselves are set up for a left-handed player. Like it's all, it works for me. I don't know how it ended up that way. It just felt right. Yeah. Um, and so everything that I play is a little bit backwards. And not only that, like I write backwards. Every oh, I started wild. writing backwards when I was in junior high because we were on the bus and everything I did was, well, if you just start this way, you can write backwards. So I always think of things as, you know, doing things out, outside the box. <laughs> yeah. Well, it certainly has worked for you. Um, <laughs> do you have uh, the same philosophy about keeping time? when you're playing the drum kit or, you know, singular percussion instruments? I believe that I am a percussionist who applies my percussion skills on drums. And again, watching uh, many great drummers who were a part of my life and watching them play again, looking at them, 
trying to mimic what I hear first, it doesn't matter what I'm seeing. It's what I'm hearing that I would then turn around and try to mimic what I heard, not what I saw. Mm. And so it would sound the same, but if you looked at both of us playing it side by side, it doesn't look the same at all. I would figure out a way to make it sound close to being the same, if not exact, but the how I would figure it out would be different. Like when I first started using drums and using two kick drums because of Billy Cobham, using two kick drum pedals, um, I I noticed that my left foot was actually another hand for me. So if I play drums and I sit in on someone else's kit and there's only one kick pedal, I feel like I'm playing like this because I'm my left foot is everything. Like uh-huh. I use it as an accent of in between what I'm playing. Yeah. So it's very strange. Like I need all four limbs to work together. Oh, that is super cool. You know, there's, it's a little off topic, but it's like, I'd always thought when I ever heard, heard uh, Stevie wonders records where he played drums, I always felt like, I felt like I was listening to a percussionist play drums. Yeah. He's very percussive in that way and playing drums, but as he is playing keyboards, everything has this specific rhythm and that's, that's internal to him. Mm-hmm. And you know that when that's brings up an interesting thing is like, we all kind of have these internal feels and as I'm a musician myself and I've become a little bit more sensitive to hearing someone who's playing ahead of the beat or behind the beat. You know, and, and I'm, I'm curious, in, in your band, do you like certain instruments to play on one side of the beat or the other? <laughs> uh, good question. No, it's actually not the instrument as much as it is the type of music. Um, Latin salsa music, you really have to play on the edge of almost being ahead of the beat. It's just different. And when I'm playing funk music, it's not funky mm-hmm. until you lay back and play. The funk music is laid back. There's different types of music. Pop music is kind of like syncopated, you know, uh, a lot of it programs. But yeah, it's not as much as the instrument as it is the music that lends to playing ahead of the beat, on the beat, or behind the beat. So I'm assuming because Prince's music was so funky, as a band leader, did he often want things played behind the beat? Did you say Prince? Yes. He never said anything because we were the same in the way that we played music as far as listening to a lot of the people. Like I grew up in Oakland, California, so he came to the Bay Area to do his first record. He loved all of the Bay Area musicians and, you know, like wanting to be in the studio where Sly Stone did his record in Carlos Santana. And at the time, my dad was in Santana. So that's when we all first heard about Prince in the studio recording his record. So for us, we looked and listened to music in the same way as far as laying back. We already, to us, it already felt natural to do that. And not unless someone didn't know, but that's not really the case. I mean, anyone that was in the band, especially when we put the one band together, it was like, it's just automatic. It, there's nothing to be said, especially when you're not having to say anything uh, musically and you the feel is what it is. You're all becoming one unit. There's nothing to be said but to play. Yeah. And you'd mentioned salsa. I, as I understand it, you're finally making a salsa album. 
I did. <laughs> yeah, uh, the album's actually done. My first ever, and I can't believe it, but <laughs> I know. Was oh, it done? It's done. Yeah, it's done. Um, oh, congrats. Thank you. It comes out March 28th or 29th. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And I have a, a lot of incredible people, Ruben Blades and Gloria Stefan and Victor Manuel. And there's Herberto uh, Santa Rosa. There's a lot of great people coming on this record and, and playing. It's probably, I believe, one mm. of the best albums I've ever done thus far, musically. Yeah. I can't wait to hear it. I mean, it, it brings something up, and that's that there's such... Uh, a connection maybe obvious to many between dance and drumming obviously with salsa uh you know but also like the early big band drummers i heard that it was rare that a big band drummer didn't also tap dance exactly yeah yeah there are a lot of drummers that tap dance or have taken dance classes like we make fun of my drummer now mm -hmm. his name is john west mcvicker we make fun in a way because he loves to he does like this river dancing stuff and he can put his leg like higher than us women who can, you know, dance like that. And he's his rhythm and his feet are just amazing. It's incredible. Wow. That is wild. I mean, uh, Hugo, as I, as I understand it, you're no stranger to salsa dancing yourself. Is that correct? That's that is right. I, I love to dance salsa. Yeah, That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> I'm looking forward for your new album. Yes, you're going to love it. You're going to love yeah. it. Do you have any plans to play in, in Mexico City, Sheila? We hope so, yeah. The opening showcase uh, launch of the record will be in Miami. So we're going to do it there, and then we're going to start playing other shows. Yeah. Oh, cool. And this may be kind of a good place to start, because you go, your area of expertise is so specific and... I think maybe a, a, a good place to start would be to ask you to explain to us what we know about how rhythm is processed in the brain. So what we do to study how the beat is represented in the brain is to start with uh, very simple rhythms. And the simpler one is isochronic, an isochronic rhythm. And that means what exactly? It means that the intervals between the very sharp stimulus Mm -hmm. are constant. Okay. So it's, it's a very monotonous type of a stimulus. Mm -hmm. um, you can change the tempo, make it fast or make it slow. And then what we do with humans is normally we ask them to reproduce this rhythm mm -hmm. or we ask them to imagine the rhythm without moving. Mm-hmm. And then what we do is we measure the brain activity. And there are different techniques to measure brain activity in humans. One of them is the functional fMRI that mm -hmm. allows you to measure uh, the hemodynamic signal, how much oxygen do you have in your brain and how you are using this oxygen through time. And then with this type of uh, methodology, you can measure which areas are engaged when you perceive the rhythm or when you follow the rhythm or when you imagine the rhythm. And the nice thing about these experiments is that we have shown that the auditory cortex, which is part of the temporal lobe, and the motor areas of the frontal lobe, which are related with 
the control of voluntary movements, are engaged during the three processes, beat perception, beat entrainment, and beat imagination. Mm. Okay, so it means that uh, you need to have an auditory input to understand and get the beat. But once you have it, is the motor system the one that is really predicting when the beat will happen? Uh, listening to Shayla, it's, it's quite evident that a professional musician is simulating in their movement all the beat, even when they are not playing. And so this is where the element of movement and dance become central to the findings, right? I mean, the motor cortex, that's chewing gum and walking and running and stuff like that. That is right. But there is not only the motor cortex that is engaged. There is other areas uh, that are called the supplementary motor areas, which are pre-motor areas. These areas not only control movements, they also mm. control sequences of movements. Mm. So the nice thing about these areas, they are encoding sequences with time. When you said beat entrainment, that means being able to sync up to a beat, right? To a rhythmic pulse. That is right. When you move in synchrony with a beat. Okay. And is the hypothesis, is that that the reason why it's in the motor cortex and why humans have evolved to have this really advanced rhythmic capability, is there an evolutionary explanation that has to do with threat perception, things like this? Well, one of the hypotheses is, is that we have this ability because our auditory cortex is deeply connected with the motor areas. The, the connections between the temporal lobe, where the auditory cortex is, the parietal areas that are some sort of association areas between stimulus and movement, and the motor areas is really sophisticated in humans. And you don't see these type of connections in apes or in monkeys. Okay. So the hypothesis is that this network is, is the one that is giving us this amazing ability to uh, perceive and produce these complex mm -hmm. rhythms. Okay. And to that end, I'd read in your research that humans, our brains actually prefer a beat that has accents. Is that right? So the notion of preferred beat means that our brain has a preferred tempo. And that tempo is around 2 hertz, between 400 and 600 milliseconds. And this is where we get more comfortable. And probably Sheila knows this. Most of the Occidental music has a preferred tempo around 2 hertz. And that's what, 120 BPM? That's right, that's right. Okay. That's pretty interesting. I mean, if you get ready to record and you open up Pro Tools or Logic, whatever app that you're going to use to record, since a lot of it is digital now, it automatically starts at 120. So people sometimes don't even change it. They just start at that tempo, not even knowing sometimes, but... It starts at 120. So it's like our brain has a natural tempo, mm -hmm. you know, and then you can de deviate from it, but it is wired to process beat in that sense. Wow, that's interesting. And the heartbeat is around 60, right? That's right, that's right. Well, that would make sense. You know, walking, walking, our 
breathing also has these type of rhythms. So it seems that um, our brain is uh, also wired for that. But in the case of beat, it's very important to emphasize that the human brain, which is one of the few brains in the kingdom that has this flexibility to perceive and produce these complex rhythms, has this preference probably because how the motor system speaks to each other through oscillations. So different areas of the brain can communicate using brain activity, of course, mm -hmm. but this brain activity also has some frequency of oscillations. And when you say oscillation, you're saying like a, a tick-tock of a clock is an oscillation, right? Well, oscillations in the brain normally are uh, measured using electromagnetic sensors, and that allows you to measure how the brain works. But oscillation means change, right? That, that's right. So it's, the oscillation is a change in, in the electric field produced okay. by the brain. So in the case of the communication between the auditory system and the motor system during beat perception, you have two types of oscillations that are really important. One of them is called the delta oscillations that are between 1 and 3 hertz. And these oscillations are the ones that really can, in the auditory cortex, extract the beat. So if you have a song with a beat of 2 hertz, the auditory cortex will oscillate at this frequency. Okay, And then it will communicate through other areas, including the motor cortex, using these this type of oscillation. So that sa at that same tempo, it's communicating within the brain at that same at this, I, at this at that tempo. And, and that's bananas. And that an important thing here is that is related with the cognitive extraction of beat. It's not the notes, the musical mm -hmm. notes. It's an extraction. It's just like Sheila was saying. You know, I have a beat internally, and then I execute it. And you, you can keep the beat for very long periods of time without doing anything. So this internal representation is based on these delta oscillations. The, the other oscillation that is very important is the predictive oscillation. And that is generated in the motor system and is in the beta range, which goes from... 13 to 30 hertz. Mm -hmm. Frequency-wise, what tempo is that approximately? Because that's the only context I have. I know I'm asking for some on-the-spot math. The number of beats per, per minute, you mean? Yeah. I'm not sure, but it's yeah. um, quite faster okay. than uh, the actual beat of, okay. uh, in the music. I'd be interested, Sheila, in your perspective on when you hear... a a record, when you hear a recording, you know how on some days it can feel slow to you and some days it can feel fast? Do you have that experience? <laughs> Every day. <laughs> My band is constantly on me because what ends up happening, I, I believe, I don't know, I, I look at it as this, when I'm really tired and it, it's a lot and mm -hmm. we're getting ready to play uh, sound check and we're tired because we just got there and we've been up all night mm -hmm. uh, trying to get to the next place. 
we go to soundcheck and I could play glamorous life and I'll turn around and go, did you guys speed that up? <laughs> because my body's just sitting here just going, oh my God, you know, like that's got to be too fast. And they're laughing at me going, no, that's your tempo, you know? And then when I'm playing because the adrenaline's happening while we're playing, I'm going, mm-hmm. this seems slow, you know, or it's right on point, but that happens all the time. And literally my band is on me about it. You know, can we just play this slower? Everything has to be so fast with you. <laughs> it's always a thing. That's funny. Have you studied that in any way you go? Does that resonate with any of the things that you've researched? Well, not me, but there are many people that has studied the subjectivity of timing. Mm. So you, your clock can speed up or slow down depending on the attention level that you have, you know, how tired you are, how motivated you are. I think there is a key element here that I would like to emphasize, and is the human brain not only can extract the beat using its auditory cortex and then predict the beat with the motor system, it also has the ability to enjoy music. Mm. And the enjoyment of of uh, following a beat is really nice. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with how the dopaminergic system is feeding dopamine to the motor system when it's doing the things right. So wow. it, it, these are three very important elements. So if you're synced up with the beat properly and you feel that the motor system is fed dopamine, is that what you're telling me? That's right. That's right. That makes sense. And, and that's a very important thing. You have a mechanism that senses where is the beat in music and where is your movement. And if there is an error, you have correction. Mm-hmm. You, you can correct. And it, it, that correction system is really plastic and very good. But on top of that, you know, every time that you are doing the things right, there is some dopamine released in what is called the basal ganglia that is part of this motor system that predicts the beat. I have a question. So, I mean, for me, I enjoy it when it's right, it's right. And I just, that's my, my drug of choice is music. Like it's everything. And I, when it's right, it's right. You just can't get enough. You just can't get enough. And it feels so good. It, it brings so much joy. And when it's bringing me joy, I see the audience, they have so much joy as well. And I always say to people, they well, they ask me first, you know, can I be taught uh, uh, rhythm or do I have rhythm um, or it do, is, does it come naturally or do you have to have the gift or can you be taught? And it's a little bit of both as far as I'm concerned because like you're saying, when it, you're right on and you're dancing on the beat and you're playing on the beat, that that one, I know what that feels like. But for some people, their one is over here. And it doesn't mean that it's wrong. Everyone has a clock. I let everyone know everyone has a rhythm because as long as you're alive, your heartbeat is the the first thing that everyone has. So that is your rhythm, your heartbeat whatever that is. Not everyone's going to know where that one is. They just don't. They don't dance there. Sometimes I'm going, what beat are they on? But it doesn't matter. That's what they're hearing. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but 
you're saying they get so much joy as it being connected like this, but there are people that are, if you're musically technically going to that place and they're over here, they still get joy over here. I, I don't know if I'm asking or do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, yes. I think I, I understand. I mean, I think the first issue is uh, perception of beat and synchronization to a beat is is something that has a very important innate component. Okay, so even newborns has the ability to track the beat. So there are some EEG experiments in newborns. They play music to them, and they they can recognize whether the music is on the beat or out of the beat. So there is an innate component. However, there is also a wide range of individual differences. So, of course, there is people that can keep the beat and perceive it in a very sophisticated and precise fashion, and there are other people that don't. So you have normal people, gifted people, and not very good people following the beat. And I think that ability is independent on the ability to enjoy music. So it's like you have two circuits. The motor circuit that can be very refined if it speaks with the auditory cortex properly. And on the other side, you have the dopaminergic system that is feeding you know, the motor system if you feel the groove of music. Mm. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question completely. No, but, you are. Uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting, though, because tell me if, I'm un- if I understood this correctly, Hugo, but you were saying that we can keep the beat for a long time in terms of, um, I guess, beat extraction. But what about people who are just not rhythmically inclined, you know, like people who cannot keep a beat? I mean, are we talking about the same thing here? Yes. So, I mean, I think you're right. There are people that cannot follow the beat, and these guys will will not have a mental, a reliable mental representation of the beat. Uh, it's, it's just part of the population that can do it, and they can do it for, for minutes. And I guess in the case of a professional percussionist like Sheila, this... I mean, probably she can uh, play many songs in in her brain without moving. (laughs) That's true. It's always, it's constantly going. Uh, The other problem, it's an issue, it's not a problem, but, you know, if I'm hearing something somewhere, I'll just start singing a rhythm in my head based on what I'm hearing in the background or whatever. In the car, the blinker, there's like 20 different, rhythms coming out at the same time when I, and I just start hearing it in my head without even moving it's just going and I'm looking around I'm not trying to go I'm just it's going tick 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 and I'm playing it or I'll play with my teeth and just or not move and it's just it's constant in my brain I don't know if that's weird or not but I don't think it's weird. It's, it's just you have this amazing ability. Yeah. You do the playing the drums with the teeth thing, Sheila? I do. Not good. My dentist tells me to stop. But you can simulate the sound of an entire drum kit with different teeth. It's really wild. I know. It's not good, though. I know. <laughs> not recommended. Um, there's so much for us to talk about. We only have a, a little bit of time left. You know, there are a couple of really fascinating things that I've read in in your research, Hugo, that I was hoping you could expand on. One is that 
children are, are more able to synchronize to a beat when they're with other people, with other children in groups rather than independent. Like there's a social component, mm. you know, like so you're more able to fall into a groove with other people, right? That is right. That's, that's another part that is very, very interesting about, you know, our ability to follow a beat and is, is the social component. And in the case of kids, you know, you can create a network just by synchrony. And the nice thing about a, a group of kids clapping at the same time is that every single element, every single child is having fun and they are enjoying because they measure, ah, this is a clap that is synchronized. So again, you have uh, an auditory system, a predictive system in the motor side, and then you have the dopaminergic system saying, wow, wow, synchrony. That's wild. The, the other thing that I thought was really wild was there was a visual component. One of the studies you did uh, that kind of blew my mind, and I'm not sure I understand it, but it involves gravity. And I think that that has to do with a, a ball falling. Or, And I know in the study also there was some reference to a conductor conducting an orchestra. So could you talk a little bit about what you've learned from this the idea of visual representations of beats? Right. So in humans, of course, uh, the modality that it is really can keep track of time is audition. So the auditory system is really, really able to do that. But the visual system, especially the visual system that it can uh, perceive motion, also can provide cues to the motor system to predict. Okay? So, for example... If you want to play tennis, of course, you need to predict where's the ball going to be when you hit it. And that's a timing task, okay? So visual motion is represented in the parietal cortex. And um, visual motion can be mixed with the representation of gravity, which the gravity is processed in the brain using what is called the vestibular system that is also part of the ear and allows you to know where are you, where is your orientation of your head, okay? So the vestibular system has the information about accelerating motion with gravity. So what we did is, is to use this task where you have a metronome and you ask subjects to tap to the metronome and then the metronome you know, just shuts down and the subject needs to continue tapping with the same tempo. And we did that with simple auditory cues, but also with visual motion cues that could go with a gravity or what is called anti-gravity, okay? So instead of accelerating when they go down, they decelerate. Like a ball. Right, like a ball falls with acceleration, that's normal gravity. I mean, you can create in a computer, of course, mm -hmm. a ball that instead of accelerates, Desaccelerates, which is totally unnatural. So, is the conclusion that we understand how gravity works so well that our brain can predict how something's going to land and when it comes back up? No, what we learned from that study is that the brain mechanisms of beat uh, like visual motion uh, more than a flashing visual oh, stimulus. Okay. But it's, it's the acceleration 
that could be in the vertical way, but also mm-hmm. in the or- horizontal way. Okay, in the horizontal way, you don't have gravity. You don't have the effect of gravity. And nevertheless, subjects were good for accelerating type of moving stimuli. So a director moves his or her hand like this. And the cue is an acceleration stop, and then you go down and you stop. So the take-home message of that study is visual motion is good inducing beat when mm-hmm. it accelerates and stops mm-hmm. very sudden. So you, you are marking the beat on a very sudden movement, okay? It, it doesn't have to do with gravity. Okay, I see. Sheila, do you ever, when you're with your own band, does that resonate with anything for how you conduct other musicians or, or even how you like to be conducted with the visual component? Yeah, I do sometimes. You know, uh, there are things that I'll I'll call out to the audience to say, and I, and I do this just for the band to to hit the down. And but then sometimes I stop, and mm. they hit it, and I don't. So there's, we do different things like that uh, during the performance. But uh, conducting, I mean, sometimes you have to like it's a feel thing. But but visually, if I'm going like this, you're thinking it's got to be firm. It's got to be like this. But when I'm going like this, it's like, it's got to be there, but it's laid back. So that movement of this is different than this. Even if it's the same tempo, it visually means two different things. I heard two interesting things on that score. One was that DJ Fontana, Elvis's first drummer in the fifties, he, uh, when they were recording for RCA, and they were recording live in the same room, he would have to watch Elvis's body because he couldn't hear singing over the the, uh, the instruments. So he was just, to keep the time, he was watching Elvis's movements. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing was we did an episode with uh, Rhiannon Giddens and an ethnomusicologist who had, I think she interviewed one of the Ohio players, and he was saying he wrote his bass lines based on how the audience was moving. You know, like if someone was dancing, that was what kind of inspired <laughs> right. his, the, the movement of his bass lines. Yeah. There are things uh, movement-wise that I also do with my band, uh, and it's movement and slowing down the tempo as we're going like this, and then I cue, then I go like this. They have to watch me. Body language is everything. Without me going one, two, it's against the rules in my band to count anything. We don't go one, two... That's against the rules. We don't count. It's all about moving and it's about feel. So if we're moving in the same place, we're going to find out where we're supposed to be. How do you start a tune then? Uh, like that. I don't need pickups. That We don't need to pick up one, two. <laughs> and then sometimes we have click in our ear, but the people can't, they can't, they can't uh, hear the click if we have click in our ear. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, but before we wrap up, is there anything that either of you have any questions that you'd like to ask one another before we finish? I have a question. Well, it, it, it has to do with, uh, with your learning process. I mean, you know, I was speaking about the fact that we have innate abilities to perceive and execute rhythm. But you were trained by your dad when you were young, and then it seems that what you did was to mimic his beat. Do you still have that image of him playing when you are playing? 
well, it's interesting because my dad is 88 years young and he's still performing. And my brothers and I, well, especially me, I'm always working. But when I'm not, we all play together in a 16-piece band. So we still play together. So the great thing about it is when my two brothers, myself and my dad play together, we can visually look at each other and go somewhere that no one's even, they don't get it because we grew up together. We don't even have to give the cue. We just look at each other. Okay, that's the break we're going to do. It's all a visual thing. We don't have to go do number 79. You know, who has time? And that'll just give it away. You just got to mm-hmm. go, okay. And you laugh and then you play this break that comes out of nowhere. And everyone's just amazed, like, how in the heck did you do that? So it's really inspiring to still play with my dad and my brothers in that way that it always makes us and I can just speak just for myself now, but it still makes us feel like we're at home growing up playing with my dad. It's a continuous lifelong uh, dream and just, you know, so grateful and blessed to still be able to do that and feel like this is the first time we ever played together. That's the most important part. It just feels like this is the first time and it's exciting and it's crazy. Fantastic. Well, I can't thank you both enough. Um, Sheila, thank you for sharing your gifts with the world. I love your music. Uh, it means so much to have you on. And Hugo, I'm so glad that I came across your work. It's so fascinating and it's so important to know the origins of why we love music and why it can feel so good. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Hugo. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. I learned a lot. Me as well. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate Bye, it. Matt. Be sure to keep an ear out for Sheila's forthcoming Salsa album and stay up to date with her live appearances by visiting her website, SheilaE.com. For more information about Hugo's research and scholarly articles, you can Google him or visit his lab's website, hugomerchant.wixsite.com slash M-I-S-I-T-I-O. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, Social media manager is Bailey Constis, location engineer Michael Haggerty at Houston Public Media, and digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Elizabeth Freund and Ia Chevres for helping make today's episode happen. If you like the show, the best way you can support us is to give us a review, tell a friend about us, and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. For more information, Go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.